Double chair. It's a double chair. Who's there? That's perfect. <laughs> Welcome, everyone interested this time in faith and reason. I am your host, the dumb Christian Jonathan, and I have with me today Mark Howard. Mark Howard. Uh, and he is going to help us walk through kind of a wrestling match. Maybe we won't end where we think we will, but we're definitely going to go on a journey today, and I think it's going to be a good one. So if you're ready to wrestle with what it looks like to walk in faith and or reason, buckle up and welcome to Dumb Christian. So, Mark, uh, before we get into kind of breaking down faith and reason, comparing them to each other. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Give a 60 second version of Mark Howard. Yeah, uh, so John and I have actually known each other since college. Um, since we both spent time at Central, I have uh, went off and got my master's in philosophy and apologetics, which is what we're gonna discuss a little bit today. Got married, have two kids. I'm currently a high school social studies teacher and living in Salem, Missouri. Salem, Missouri. Not the witch trial Salem. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Good Sorry. clarification yes. there for us. We didn't burn any witches that I know of. <clears throat> so, as any good conversation or debate really needs to establish on a good platform is a, a um, what am I trying to say? Uh, a, a standard of definitions. Yes. What am I trying to say? We're defining some some terms before we get into the heat yeah. of it. Yeah, so we're going to define some terms. Um, yeah, so I would say, um, and because we're going to come from a couple different perspectives, I'm really coming from a position of like looking at faith and pursuing faith. And, and like Mark said, he's, his, his master's is in philosophy, so he's coming from a position of reason. And, and so I would say... Um, <clears throat> My definition of faith is is this certainty of things that maybe are unknown and um, that the ability to be certain of things that are unknown is a gift from God. So faith is not something that we conjure up on our own, but it is this thing that kind of um, extends beyond our ability to comprehend it. It's a gift from the divine and it it might give us the ability to be certain of things that we can't know for sure by putting our hands on. How's sure. that sound for a sounds definition sounds of faith? Wonderful. Okay, how would you define reason? Um, I think we can define reason as a tool or a method of inquiry that we use to kind of understand the natural world. Like, I would include scientific inquiry in that, philosophical inquiry in that, um, but it's it's a tool we use to understand uh, the world as it's presented to us is how I would, again, that's not a perfect definition, but that's kind of a working definition. That's, where we're, that's, that's the definition we're using yep. in our conversation. Okay, I think that's a good starting point. Mm -hmm. John and I uh, have been in contact for a while and we message back and forth. And uh, one of the things that now for years that I've been struggling with is, uh, and kind of the reason why I think this whole podcast came into fruition is how do we harmonize faith and reason? Are they harmonizable? Um, are they compatible? Are they against one another? And my struggle has been over these, again, almost five years now, is 
what role does reason play in faith, um, dealing with my own doubts, uh, struggles in terms of accepting faith. And so that's kind of the impetus for this whole discussion is can we understand, come to a better understanding of the role of reason and perhaps deal with some doubt along the way. I don't think I've come to a conclusion on any of this. It's certainly a struggle, as John kind of mentioned at the beginning, a wrestling match that we may end up actually wrestling on all of John's wonderful yeah. equipment here. What's impetus mean? Like the, the, the driving force behind. Hmm. So the reason why we're getting here together. And yeah, so we've had these conversations and every time we talk and it's like, man, that's that's a wrestling match that I think if we're fair and honest with ourselves, it's probably a wrestling match we should each have because um, there's value in coming to a position on whichever side, knowing certainty, knowing for sure, like this is, you know, I've I've this is where I land because it's easy for us to fall either side of the fence into you know, like, well, it's easier to just go this way. And I, I think maybe a lot of times we actually do have these wrestling matches, but we don't know how to put words to it. Mm. And um, so uh, bear with us because Mark uses big words and I'll try and make sure that we dumb it down because I don't know what he's talking about half the time. Okay. So let's get into it. Um, yeah. Take us away. So, um, in our discussions, uh, we brought up multiple times, my, my dissertation for my master's was directly dealing with what role reason plays uh, specifically in coming to faith. And when you think of reason as a tool and understanding faith, we get to the realm of apologetics. Um, Which is what? So apologetics is kind of the, the word itself, apologia, just has to do with making a defense for something, mm -hmm. uh, like a logical reason-based defense. And in this case, when we talk about Christian apologetics, we are giving certain arguments, reason-based arguments primarily, for the validity of or invalidity of faith. Yeah, okay, okay. So you were kind of like exploring where does how does this all fit together? Yep, 100%. So one of the guys I focus on a lot is a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he has this concept that... Um, do we want to get this far ahead yet? Uh, however you want to go, man. Okay. Um, that ultimately reason can only get us so far. So it almost think of it like you are climbing a mountain and you get to the top of this mountain and there is this cliff, this precipice below you. And the mountain itself is almost made of reason and experience and what he would refer to as the finite. The finite is the world we understand, the world we inhabit. And beyond this gap is the infinite that's out there. But obviously, the mountain itself, reason, stops. So in order to make it from the finite to the infinite, the infinite here being God or the divine or that which is outside of the finite world, a leap is required. Um, so then the question becomes, does reason guide us in that leap? Is reason just the mountain that we climb and we have to leap off of that? Or is there any type of interplay uh, between that, which is kind of where my paper went? Like almost kind of like reason is something that we as finite beings, as limited beings, as human beings, we can put our feet on. We can stand on it. We're kind of like, okay, I understand this. Mm -hmm. But but to step into a, a an acknowledgement of and belief in 
the divine, whoever that may be. I mean, we're just talking in general terms when it comes to faith, right? Like, it doesn't matter who, whichever divine being you're like considering to take that step and walk in a life that says, oh, yeah, I fully believe in this. I have faith in this deity mm-hmm. requires you to take a step that doesn't have something that you can like firmly plant your feet on, like logic or reason. Right. Okay. And so that, that leap, um, he uses the story of Abraham and Isaac, um, which if you're familiar with the biblical story there, um, God promises Abraham a descendants as numerous as the stars, and then the one descendant he actually has, he says, now take your son, your only son, and go kill him. Um, that leap of him saying, I'm going to kill my son, and but still inherit everything God promised is unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And this is Kierkegaard's like basic analogy for how um, faith works. It takes us beyond what is rational, what all, beyond what makes sense into a different realm. Because I, I think it's Hebrews that says Abraham trusted that he could bring him back from the dead, but sure. unreasonable, it's completely <laughs> unreasonable because there's nothing, you know, you read the New Testament, you see Jesus bringing people back from the dead. Fine, fine. But in Abraham's time, there was nothing like that. There's no, no precedent for him to even have this idea that that's what would happen. So for him to think that way requires him to take steps that aren't on a firm foundation of logic and reason. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what Kierkegaard actually refers to this uh, in a book called uh, Fear and Trembling. And in there, he doesn't directly address reason he dress, uh, addresses ethics and that abram has to suspend one type of ethic that says don't kill your son and he calls this we're going to use big words a teleological suspension of the ethical teleological just has to do with the end goal of something the telos the design the goal that has to be suspended in order to um, kind of adapt a divine ethic and in the dissertation that i wrote I argue that that needs to be taken one step further to not just suspend ethics, but suspend our adherence to reason as we leap into faith. Because in Abraham's situation, it's and there's a very significant moral element. Mm-hmm. But that's don't not kill your son, right? Yeah. Don't kill your son, <laughs> right? But that's not the step that everyone has to take. Sure. So. Not everyone's dealing necessarily with a moral dilemma that they have to suspend to believe and and, and obey God, but just even a logical, right? So that's why we have to take it from morality. We have to take it to philosophy and logic. A step further. Yeah. Especially nowadays where there definitely seems to be a, a driving force to pit Christianity and science against one another, Christianity and reason against one another. Uh, I think this whole discussion becomes a lot more uh, central to kind of cultural focus at the moment. Yeah. So um, for Kierkegaard, the step that he says you should take is an inward movement. He calls it an inward movement. It's a subjective movement. And that through this inward movement of faith, we reach the uh, objective truth of the infinite. The problem in lies in that movement, because as soon as you turn inward, as soon as you are no longer making 
he calls it attaching yourself to the edifice of reason, we open ourselves up to a whole lot of potential pitfalls mm-hmm. and being misled. Uh, I mean, the, the history books are full of you know, people who have used other people's faith to get them to do atrocities yeah. or because once we suspend reason, even if it is necessary, we also open ourselves up to a lot of potential. To unreasonableness. To, uh, yeah, to, yeah, exactly, to okay. unreasonableness, and that can be taken in a lot of ways. Let's walk through subjectivity a little bit. Because mm-hmm. you, said, you said to get... To objectivity. To objectivity. Let, let's do some defining of terms. Yeah. What's subjectivity and what's objectivity? So... Um, when I've, I got the opportunity to teach an intro to philosophy class in high, for a bunch of high schoolers, and the way I described subjectivity versus objectivity is subjectivity is what comes from the self. It's our preconceived notions about reality, things that are generated from the self, our opinions, ideas. It's an, an inward thing. Objectivity, our own interpretation of another person, right. language, culture, it's all the universe. Yeah, our own ideas. We generate it. Of, of what is going on around us. And objectivity is that kind of ineffable thing that exists outside of us that is supposedly discoverable. I mean, I think every scientist and philosopher, their whole pursuit is we need to find objective truth, that which is true, independent of my reason of what I think. or my yeah my thought process. It's solid, true, immovable regardless of what people think about it. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so what we're what we're trying to figure out is can we use logic and reason science if you will right. philosophy yep. philosophy to get to the objective. Right. And this is the Austrian uh, he is uh, Danish. Oh, I think you said that. This mm-hmm. Danish guy says no. Right. It can only get us so far. It gets us to the point of what he calls you know, the leap wow. of faith or the leap into faith. It's the leap Abraham had to make with Isaac. It's the leap he, cl- the leap he claims all. He refers to them as knights of faith, these biblical heroes. Um, it's would he say there is something objective? You just can't get to it? Yes. Oh, so okay. yeah, for Kierkegaard, it's not that the objective doesn't exist. It's that it exists, but the only access to we have to it is an inward movement of subjectivity actually brings us to the objective. Okay, so how does that work? We walk through things that are subjective to our own interpretation, our own ideas. Mm-hmm. How do we... How do we use our subjective experiences to discover something outside of us and objective? So he uses these two terms of the paradox of faith and the absurdity of faith. And that by reason's estimation, this movement is completely absurd, right? The idea that you could make an inward subjective movement into the objective is not only absurd, it's paradoxical. It doesn't, two contradicting statements. How can you do that? Um, but that is what he argues the role of faith is, is that it takes the absurd and then through this ridiculous movement of like, I'm going to kill my son and somehow from this, I'm going to inherit everything God's promised. It's absurd and paradoxical. Mm-hmm. But once the leap is made, Abraham gets back everything he was promised and more. And more. And by accepting the absurdity of faith and the paradox of faith, everything he sacrificed on the altar of reason 
is returned to him. And but, that's the movement. But how does our subjectivity get us there? I mean, it's, it's not subjectivity like you're not getting there on your own, according to Kierkegaard. It's your subjective movement in, of faith. The faith for him, if you, want to, you described it earlier as a gift, something that is outside of ourselves, but something that we accept into ourselves. So the subjectivity, the relative aspect of this adventure is our choice to yes. participate in that. Right. So because we each have a choice. We're not obligated. We're not um, compelled to choose. So we, we climb up the mountain, and then our subjective participation is... In this faith. It, into, but... Uh, okay, okay, okay. Hang on. Mm-hmm. So our role in reaching the object... Uh, the, the foundational, as you say, ineffable, unchangeable truth... Mm-hmm. The infinite. Is... Is just choosing... Making this, yeah, making the inward choice of saying, I'm going to suspend reason, suspend reason as the anchoring force for understanding my reality. And in the place of reason, I'm going to place faith there. Um, The tricky part becomes Kierkegaard doesn't want to throw reason out altogether. If if you throw reason out altogether, in, in theological terms, this is called fideism where reason actually becomes the enemy of faith. And that, Kierkegaard and many other uh, theologians argue, is dangerous because that is the basis for every fundamentalist extremist group in the world. Reason no longer matters. Mm. For Kierkegaard, once this, the change is made where faith becomes primary, it's not that reason is completely abandoned. It's only temporarily suspended. And once the leap is made, it regains its place but with faith actually as the anchoring force for Kierkegaard. But reason is still there. It still informs the faith, but it is temporarily suspended, hence the title of the the work. It is the teleos, or the end design of reason, is temporarily suspended in order to make the leap, but not reject it altogether. Some big, yeah, big concepts. To make the leap. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is to want to decide to believe in God mm. requires that ultimately what you're doing is you're at least temporarily suspending every logic and reason that wants to argue and say that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And you say, I choose to believe anyway. And then once you've made that decision and you've, you've had a, an, a taste of the infinite, mm-hmm. I, then, then, logic and reason kind of like come back and then there's some sort of like relationship between logic, reason, and faith. Yeah, Faith, the way it's described, it's like faith informs your reason. So it's, yeah, you're not abandoning reason. Faith is just used as now the tool that gives um, sense to your reason. Okay, 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 okay. So our starting point is an a perspective on logic and reason that's subjective to my ability to interpret the world. Mm-hmm. Once I reach the extent, the limit of my ability to interpret reality, it requires me to suspend what I understand about reality, to believe in God. And then the way I understand and interpret reality after that point is kind of colored through the lens of, 
I believe in God. Is Correct. that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a good. That's a good estimation of it. Okay. Next. Um. Let's see, we went through teleological suspension. What What is you You use this phrase in in our conversations when we were talking about the shortcomings um, of using reason to induce faith. Mm. We haven't talked about that yet, but there, there's this phrase that this guy uses, inducing faith. So talk to us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so for, for the longest time, I, I am, in fact, you might even say I'm still in this point where I'm not quite willing to make the inward movement and abandon reason. It's almost like if you're a, a kid or you decide to go, if you ever decide... Um, parachuting or skydiving, whatever it's called. And you're at that moment where you're like, all right, I got to jump out of the plane. Everything's going to be fine. But in that moment, there is fear and uncertainty about what jumping out of the plane means Mm -hmm. or what jumping off the cliff means. And the idea of reason inducing, when we think of like somebody being induced into labor, they're being put into labor um, sooner than, or maybe even against when your body would do it, right? You're, You're inducing them because the body isn't naturally doing what it's supposed to do. It's almost... It's almost violent that you're inducing mm-hmm. or forcing reason to serve this goal that in this case, according to Kierkegaard anyway, it's not supposed to serve this role. If, if you are a student of apologetics, you may find that offensive because at least in some part, that is what apologetics does. Um, even if it's not fully, the whole purpose of apologetics is to argue for, to bring about um, belief in God through reasonable means, but according to Kierkegaard, it can't get us all the way there. I'm certain, I'm certain, certain, um, theologians would differ on that and say, well, maybe apologetics can be used to get us all the way there, but that's a whole nother argument. You know, and as we've had these conversations, I think I find it interesting because I think for some people, apologetics might get them all the way there. And for some people, apologetics like have no place Mm. right so it takes all sorts yeah i mean (laughs) there's definitely and there might even be people listening to this that i'm sure because of a convincing apologetic argument Mm -hmm. chose to make the movement Um, but i think kierkegaard and if i can even put myself in the same sentence as him would say it got you to the point but it didn't make you make the subjective leap it might have been such a overwhelmingly convincing, reasonable argument that you made the leap without even second guessing the leap, but ultimately right. you still suspended logic and reason to make that leap. That's the argument. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, I mean, we could get into um, the dangers of what happens once that leap is taken. Unless there was, yeah, no, no, that's good. Let's, yeah, let's walk into that. What's this phrase called? Which phrase? The danger of experientialism. Oh yes, he's got all wonderful notes. (laughs) What's this phrase that we're we're gonna press into called? Uh, The danger of experientialism. (laughs) Okay. Um, So the the problem becomes if if you've heard the term experientialism before. A lot of times it's used in a charismatic context or if you go way back in history, like a pagan context of you are almost drumming up this 
inward experience where you're convinced that you're having this moment with the divine um, to the point where you have completely convinced yourself your body may be doing certain physical actions that you're so convinced without the divine's impact on this. There's no way I would be doing any of these things. And it opens us up uh, to be deceived because even if the, the Christian experience is correct, at the very least, most Christians would agree that if you have any other religious experience outside of Christianity, that at the very least it's demonic and at the, you know, the most, it's probably just something you tricked yourself into. Completely fabricated. Right. So how do you, what divining rod do you use? What plumb line do you use once you've made the leap to know? Because you've just abandoned mm-hmm. reason. Right. How how can you now divine for yourself what is a real experience and what is made up if reason is abandoned? And this is kind of the dilemma that I'm in. It's as soon as that leap is made, you no longer, you're, you're free floating, right? You're, you know, uh, Another philosopher who I'm a big fan of, Nietzsche, says you're you're floating endlessly in the void. You know, whither to is up, is down. There there is no directional markers that once you're floating in this infinite nothingness. So, okay, this is interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is the danger of experiencing having a spiritual experience subjective yep. is subjective, mm-hmm. but ultimately that's what's required anyway to right. get us into faith so it's kind of this tricky like whether you take the leap or not you're mm-hmm. still relying on your own subjective interpretation of the universe mm-hmm. to determine what's real or not do, yeah. you, do you agree with that 100 okay okay, yeah, okay i'm with you that's the danger of it and so it's not that these spiritual experiences aren't real but it is possible for us to fabricate them, manifest them in our own imagination. Right. And for us to be able to know what's real and what's we made up on our own, that's a real tricky because especially if we, we want so desperately for it to be a genuine divine encounter. Yeah, everybody wants an encounter with the divine. It's, right. Yeah. And, and and because we want that so bad, who's to say we didn't make that experience up on our own? Mm-hmm. Um, how yeah. do you go, go ahead? ahead. Sorry. How how do you feel about kind of like sharing like some of your reason why? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, <clears throat> I guess early on in my Christian journey. I, I won't even name the group, but I got into, a, a, I guess, a faith movement that was a little more charismatic in nature. And during that time there, I, I was told anyway that I experienced a baptism of the Spirit, which for your audience, I don't know if you wanted to explain what that is for those that may not know what a baptism of the Spirit is. We'll just say a, a divine encounter. Sure. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, and in that divine encounter, I was what's called slain in the spirit, you know, where you're basically your your body goes limp and you fall on the floor. And I didn't have convulsions or anything, but um, felt tingly all over and you know, very, um, this very existential, like almost like I was on, I've never done shrooms or acid, but what I imagine that would be like where your mind is doing these things that up until that point you'd never experience. And I, 
I completely attributed it to the divine um, for the longest time through my process of years later uh, of reasonable inquiry, I got to the point where I said, if, if that was real, how do I know that that was any more or less of a real experience than the, um, the, the Greek, um, my mind's blanking out, what are they called? The oracles at Delphi, right? Who would you know, convulse and speak in tongues when people would come to see, uh, to see them or to get a divine word. And they would literally do the same things that, uh, that I'm just describing to you. But obviously, I think most Christians would agree that the Oracle of Delphi and all of those individuals were either filled with demons or high on their own medicine, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, because I, as soon as I said that this was valid, I couldn't say the Oracle of Delphi was invalid any more than I could say my own experience was valid because, as we've already said, it was completely subjective. And the idea that I didn't have a way to define or to categorize truth from falsehood as soon as I entered into this experiential realm is, um, is terrifying. And it's kind of where um, this whole journey of me trying to understand started. Why is it terrifying? Why does, why does the idea that um, your subjective experience might possibly not have been genuine, why does that scare you? I mean, I would hope that for most people, the idea of being hoodwinked um, is not something they would want to do. I think most of us, if, if we find out somebody's tricked us, um, that puts us off. Without going into a whole lot of detail, when I was younger, uh, I was involved in, I guess, what you could call a cult and a religious cult. And I was 100% hoodwinked. The individual who you know, led this, this group you know, basically claim to speak for God. If you disagreed with this person, you were disagreeing with the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and my whole life was for a, my te younger teen years, I was so convinced of this that if I upset this person, you know, I would I incur the wrath yeah, of God, incur the wrath of God. I mean, it gave me night terrors. It panicked me to, to no end because I had swallowed wholesale this manipulation of this individual. And I think that desire and that fear of being tricked again uh, is that I'm not saying it's the only piece of the puzzle in this whole thing but it certainly plays a role I would be foolish to say it doesn't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think to be fair you know there's a, a pretty significant difference between someone trying to compel you mm -hmm. to a to make a so to someone to induce faith right and to compel you to sure. make a choice of faith versus man i really want to know what happens when i leave off this mountain mm -hmm. right like I, I don't need someone to tell me to believe in god to want to believe in god sure right so yeah i mean there is definitely uh, a wrestling match for us to like what is, what's the right thing for me to do? Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for joining Mark and I on part one of Faith and Reason. We're going to push pause right there, pick up next week, and finish up with part two, Faith and Reason with Mark Howard. 
Be sure to share this with your friends, family. Don't go on this journey alone. Hit subscribe and ring that bell so you know when part two is available. Love you guys. Catch you later. Oh, 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 oh.